Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Last month's school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, reignited a decade-long debate over gun violence in the U.S. School shootings have become a regular occurrence over the last decade. And by one count, using data from Every Town for Gun Safety, Time Magazine found that 90 children and 72 adults have died in school shootings since Sandy Hook. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we talk about how teachers, parents, students, and administrators are faring after a year that's included violence in schools, academic and social struggles due to the ongoing pandemic and a mental health crisis. And later, firearms are officially the number one cause of death for both children and teens in the U.S., We'll talk with a political scientist who's leading a new research center at UConn to look at solutions to preventing gun violence. But now we're joined by two lifelong educators. Fran Rabinowitz is a former teacher and current executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Edward Singleton is interim principal at Roten Middle School in Norwalk, Connecticut. Fran and Edward, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having us. You know, it was important for us to speak to the two of you because we are now less than a month removed from the tragic school shootings in Uvalde, Texas. And we're learning so much about the events of that day, but also the aftermath of that event. And so, Ed, I want to start with you. What were your initial reactions when you heard the news coming out of Texas? Uh, My initial reaction, I would literally stick to my stomach. Um, that, again, uh, innocent children were being victimized, innocent parents were being victimized over literally nothing. Um, I just, it's just so difficult for me uh, in my role and in my position because, you know, being the face of the school, um, having to have to know it all, keep it together all the time, is really stressful. Uh, I think about these kids uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, I think about their parents on the weekends. And if, you know, it's hard enough to see them get hurt over traditional, you know, incidents that happen in gym. They fall, they hurt themselves. But for someone to intentionally want to hurt a child, my one of my kids, one of um, the community's kids, is a a really hard thing to do. So I try to keep it, I really try to keep my composure about these things, but it's in your quiet times when you reflect and have to watch this on the news, just putting yourself in the position of that school official, of how, like, what do you do? You know, while we send our kids to school to be educated, but we send them first to be safe. And that has betrayed the trust of a lot of families not, you know, there are certain places that are sacred, the church, the school, the hospitals, and people have now started to affect these sacred grounds. So my first reaction was honestly just, I was literally sick that here we are again, uh, really hits close to home. 
because I know after the incident in Newtown, we started to receive a lot of teachers in Norwalk. I'm in Norwalk, Connecticut, uh, in Norwalk from those school, uh, from that district. I have a teacher now um, who was part of that, you know, school at that part in that time in the district and works in my school now. And it's a struggle. Fran, Ed is reminding us that even when events happen in one space, the impact isn't beholden to that space. It's a reminder. It's a connection. It's a what if, what would I do for educators really across the country? What was your response when you heard the news coming out of Texas? Well, of course, it goes without saying, as Ed said, it was incredibly devastating. And it came at a week after I had suffered a very personal loss in my family. Um, My great nephew was the Fairfield Prep student who had been stabbed um, and killed. So I was reeling from the violence. And to hear this was um, absolutely unbelievably um, devastating for for this to be happening again. And when, along with that devastation, was tremendous frustration about why is it happening again? Why haven't we moved forward as a country to do something about it? I'm an educator. I'm a protector of children. And yet, I was in Hamden when it happened in Newtown. I was superintendent in Hamden. And one of the hardest things I had to say to parents was, we'll do everything possible to to safeguard your children, but I can't give you 100% assurance that they will always be 100% safe. And that's a very difficult piece to um, have to convey to parents and families. Fran, I want to convey my condolences to you and to your family, because you're reminding me that, you know, we often talk in this country about post-traumatic stress, but for many families, it's perpetual traumatic stress, the way that they connect, the way that they land in our spirits, and how do you do the job? And, And we'll get in a little bit about how the job has changed so much for educators, but Edward... Part of, and I'll reveal my own bias here as a parent, part of a relief that I found during the shutdown of the pandemic when kids weren't in school is that it gave us a bit of a respite from having to worry about these school-based incidents of violence. And here we are at the midpoint in 2022, and we've already had 27 school shootings in the U.S. What are you hearing from parents and students After these events, you talked about that humanity of I'm an administrator. What are you hearing from parents and students? So I I see a hypersensitivity and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a realistic way, because this is the world that we live in. And it's the one the one ignored text message from school, from parent, uh, from the kid to the parent, one ignored phone call could be the incident where you wished or regretted that you would have answered that text or um, answered that call from the school. So I see a hypersensitivity because that's where we are. 
and I don't, again, sometimes when we say hypersensitive, it seems that could be like a negative connotation. But in this day and age, I think that we have to almost react. You can't ignore anything at this point, or you can't underestimate anyone's capability or, or what their um, what they can possibly do or what their, their, their possibilities are, because what it really, and I want to speak to what you said about the shutdown, mental health issues have heightened, uh, people being disconnected during the shutdown, people not being able to interact, because in a lot of spaces, some people were alone. They didn't have family or they didn't have friends or the people they were with, it was not the respite that they needed was to leave their homes to go to work. So I understand where in functional, good households are where people are, you know, respectful and have great relationships. It is a sense of reset, restart. I have seen an increase in violence overall, particularly in my school, because of kids not being able to interact with other kids and not being able to resolve conflict with the presence of an adult who is experienced in conflict resolution. I've seen a heightened sense in certain cases of parents not being able to interact well with school administration, school staff, because of the disconnection and not having that sense of community, um, sense of feeling supported. Uh, it was just that virtual world that took us by storm was really impactful, sometimes to the detriment because it really left us with that uh, FaceTime in person that uh, kind of is rearing its, we're starting to see the effects now. It's almost like, you know, um, I don't know if anyone's ever worked with uh, maybe kindergartners or elementary kids when they first come to school you have to you don't know they come from so many various different backgrounds and then you have to set the standard for them so they know how to do school we're back at every age learning how to do school fran i'm struck that connecticut is such a small state but it's a very diverse state when it comes to the districts, the towns that are part of the state, particularly in the realm of public education. And we hear a lot, rightfully so, about the mental health of our students, the need for supports, how the lack of connection, the lack of community is manifest in a lot of, of negative behaviors and interactions. Where do administrators and superintendents and teachers and staff go? For that kind of support because they are frontline workers in many ways who are delivering more than just, you know, textbook learning and education. As Ed mentioned, they're really helping people to reset basic human interactions. How concerned are you for the staff that we have in our schools that we put so much responsibility on in this domain? You know, you are hitting on something incredibly important. Number one, I would tell you that what Ed is talking about in terms of the mental health of students is widespread prevalence. It is not just the urban or the rural. It is across the state. And it is one of the things I um, talk to um, superintendents about all of the time. I think that we have lobbied hard 
for the legislature to give us more funding, which they have done for mental health services. We have our ESSER federal funding for, for mental health services. Guess what the issue is? The issue is finding the providers for mental health services. I mean, I hear about school-based health centers. When I was superintendent in Bridgeport, I depended on my school-based health centers. And I'm hearing that many of those are not able to be staffed now with social workers. They can't find them. So what we're working on right now is how to attract more social workers, school psychologists to help us meet the needs. But we're also working on SEL, social and emotional learning, um, trying to work with teachers to train them in how to look at the whole child. And I could go on and on about that. I've been a proponent of SEL since 2007. And I would say to you that we have to give our teachers permission to take the time to look at the whole child, to check in with the children on their feelings. Academic success is certainly what we're after. We want the kids to learn, but you can't learn if you're fearful. And I believe that we have to work with teachers. We have to work with uh, thinking of new and creative ways of having connections for children with adults. And I think there are many ways that that can happen. I, you know, certainly I want the psychologists, social workers, counselors, but that's long-term. It's gonna take a while to build that. And we have a need right now. So how do we build our force, so to speak, to meet our children's needs right now? And that's what we are um, working on across the state. I'm working with the legislature. I'm working with many different commissions on this because I think it is, as, as Ed has said, an absolute need in our schools right now. And the other need that we have in our schools right now, people. We need people who are there, who, who care, but who feel supported in their work. I was shocked in, in prepping for this show, reading data from the National Education Association, which for our listeners is one of the nation's biggest teacher unions. They reported earlier this year that over half of all teachers plan to leave the profession sooner than they originally thought, maybe a year ago or five years ago. How are you in your school and, and in your conversation with your peers how does this threat of violence become just another layer of teachers saying, this is not what I signed up for, and I already do more than what I signed up for, but maybe this is too much? We're finding it hard to, um, in not just this district, but all over, people are not wanting to become teachers. Students at the collegiate level aren't wanting to become teachers or professionals that work within the school building. I was having a conversation recently, and one of the things that I said is, and this is a question that I couldn't answer during the conversation, I asked the question, but I still couldn't answer it, was how do we make teaching enticing again? What, because like what you said, people are dealing with mental health issues that they're watching and learning about or dealing with themselves. You have threats of violence, whether it be small level, well, any violence is a big deal, but there are obviously different levels to it, right? Dealing with school violence, um, you're dealing with 
you know, the, the amount of work that you're expected to do, not just in the school building, but outside of the school building, because you just can't get it done all day. So we're battling a lot of, I would say, circumstances that pour into one's reasoning for turning their back on the profession, uh, where I can go work in my cubicle, and I know from nine to five, I'm expected to do these things, and I can go home. And then the next day, I can come back in from nine to five and do these things and be expected to go home. I think it takes a special person to want to be a teacher. Obviously, we all knew that, uh, a love for kids, a love for helping. But now you have to really want to um, not, not only um, cater to your love for the kids, love for the profession, you have to love to problem solve, you have to love to nurture, you have to love to parent, you have to love to be a, a guru in uh, social emotional learning, you have to love to be a support for your colleagues and peers, um, which all comes in a teacher's walk per day. That was Roten Middle School Principal Edward Singleton and Fran Rabinowitz of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. After the break, more from our conversation. We'll hear about the changes that Connecticut schools have made since Sandy Hook. And later, how can we better educate gun owners on gun storage and safety? This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week on the show, we're looking at a year of disruptions in Connecticut schools. And coming up, what is the research telling us about the prevalence of gun violence in America? And what are the solutions to end it? But now we return to our panel of Connecticut educators. Fran Rabinowitz is a former teacher and the current executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Edward Singleton is the interim principal of Roten Middle School in Norwalk, Connecticut. This December will mark the 10-year anniversary of the Sandy Hook school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. And despite an outcry from then-President Obama and Americans around the country, federal lawmakers have failed to pass meaningful gun control reform. 
I asked Fran if she thinks that Connecticut is better prepared for events like Sandy Hook and whether schools are safer today. I would say without a doubt, and I, you know, have no issue saying this at all. We are incredibly better prepared today than we were 10 years ago. We were bowled over 10 years ago. We did not know where to begin. I think that Connecticut is a leader in gun control laws. Um, We still have some ways to go, but we are a leader and I'm proud of that. I wish the rest of the country would pick it up and run with it. We have a delegation in Washington that's fighting hard for gun control. I think that we have instituted incredibly effective means of augmenting security in every school. And I'm a believer in that. And we have, um, the legislature has provided money every year for augmenting security. So do I think we're far ahead there? Yes. What I don't think we are far ahead on yet is mental health services. And quite frankly, I was incredibly angry at the governor, uh, at Governor Abbott in Texas, when he said, this is all about mental health. It has nothing to do with guns. This is just, you know, our kids not being well. That's a blatant lie. It is not just about mental health. We know we have mental health issues, but it's it's both. And we have to work on both right now. I think Connecticut can't become complacent in where we are either with gun control laws. We need to do more. And, you know, we we still have the fact that they can come in from Massachusetts or or Maine with guns. Do you know what I mean? So we've got to work on some of those pieces as well, but that depends upon the nation working. And if I can say one thing about teachers and the appreciation of teachers and what teachers are up against right now, far more than when I was teaching, okay? Because it was pretty simple when I was teaching. I could leave the doors open and the windows open and I could go to children's homes and And I could play outside with kids and do all those wonderful things. And I think we have a whole lot more restrictions on our teachers today in terms of what they can and cannot do. I also think that we as a nation need to carefully examine our respect of the profession. This didn't happen overnight, guys. This is not just because of COVID. Over the last 15 years, we have eroded the respect of teachers and of the profession. Any superintendent worth their salt or a principal knows that if the teachers aren't effective in the classroom, our job is over. We can't be effective. And so I think that we have to put some things forward there in terms of respect. Yes, it's a money issue and we need another enhancement act, so to speak, that we had in the 80s. And we also need to foster that respect and honor the people that are responsible for for taking care of our most um, important treasure in this country. And I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, because as I'm listening to you and to Fran and thinking about, you know, what people are navigating every day, when there's a mass shooting, a mass act of violence, there's a lot of attention to that. 
But I'm struck that these everyday, more mundane acts of violence that don't make the news, the ways that young people are dealing with instability in their home, in their neighborhood, in their community, and how it presents in school, and then the consequences of being labeled as a problem kid because you're, you're working through all of this. What do we need to do? to address that and to support the young people who are navigating this to say, you care when it's happening in Texas, but you're not thinking about what we're facing in Norwalk or in Bridgeport or New Haven or, you know, Watertown, any other city or area in our state. What do we do to address that everyday challenge? One of the things that I think has been the detriment to young people because they just don't have the capacity, and I don't mean that in any disrespectful way, to control, the the impulse control is that darn cell phone. They want to be the first to post this. They want to be the first to post that. Again, growing up in a community that where sometimes, well, there were fights a lot too, but, you know, people would run to the fight to watch it and disperse for whatever crazy reason people would do. They should be running the other way or running to get help to break it up. Kids stand there and watch and record kids get pummeled, which is so disturbing to me. I have, and I don't say this proudly, but uh, I just had to enforce and set a standard in my building of bringing kids to the ultimate consequence, which is facing expulsion for their, their behavior. Now, I am not at the, I can recommend expulsion, but I don't decide expulsion at all. But I have had to make that hard choice and that hard call to recommend that you're at this point in your life and this time are unsafe to be in this school building. Or at this point in your academic career, it is not good for you to be here because you have the ability to affect other students in this way. Uh, I can't obviously give specifics about any of those, but there were many this year because kids are really having a hard time. Parents have to work to support their children. So I think that as I'm actually thinking about this now, maybe I need to do more about some kind of SEL groups after school before kids get home because parents have to work and they can't provide that social emotional connection sometimes that a kid needs um, because once I get home from work, I have to cook, I have to prepare for tomorrow. I have to sit down, hopefully sit down with you and do your homework. And then after that, sometimes in households, no matter what the structure is, whether it's two parents, three parents, four parents, one parent, the demands of this society that we have on the working class, average working class person, sometimes ultimately makes us disconnect with our children because of all that we need to do just to live and survive in today's community, uh, in today's America, today's Connecticut. So the the cell phone is really an issue. You know, I know parents want their kids to use it for safety reasons, call me and press 911 for this and the other, but maybe parents should explore, and there are some apps out there to disengage the phone to TikTok to some of these non and counterproductive applications on phones that are really detrimental. Kids are exposed to too much too early. And, you know, 
and we're around the same age group, you know, parents would say that you guys are doing too much or you're being too grown. But now literally they have, we put devices in their hands to expose them to anything that they want to see in this entire world. And it's, they don't know how to, at this point, and I'm talking, I'm middle school, middle school and below, upper high school, they're young adults, but that ninth grade, 10th grade and below area, the impulse control that they have is not strong enough to not film a fight, not show their privates. Some, I can't really say so much that I have seen. Our, our listeners can't see this, but it's all over your face of how troubling this is. But what I hear and what you're saying, Ed, is the need for partnership and collaboration. I think too often we are in a mode where we're either blaming teachers or blaming parents or blaming everyone else. And when it comes to this issue of keeping schools safe, of thinking about safety in a holistic way, and what I'm hearing from you is gun violence is a part of it. These mass events are part of it. These everyday ways in which people are socialized to deny the humanity of others means that they deny that respect of themselves. What is one thing that you would say to listeners as we head into the summer and prepare for the next academic year? What is one thing you would like us to do together to keep our schools safe? Well, I think what we can do is this is the perfect time to, again, that word reset keeps coming to mind because now we've had a year under our belt of learning how to do school again. We now need to take it a step further, ensuring that our kids are active this summer in some sort of academically based program uh, where we keep that hunger and thirst for learning alive. And then again, to monitor your child's access to the internet and their cell phone because they're being exposed to too much too early, too soon. So again, I I think this is a time to reset, spend time with your kids in museums, spend time with your kids in academically based environments. That's not necessarily the traditional eight to three school model, but something that refreshes their mind and renews them and ensures that they are um, academically engaged. In terms of safety, the best thing that I could say is monitor that cell phone. Fran, given all that we've discussed today, given those challenges, what's one thing that gives you hope that we'll get this right? What gives me hope? What gives me hope are the wonderful people in the profession and the people that I meet in the legislature and in the governor's office and at the State Department that give me hope that this is moving forward, that they care and that they want to make the change. And it is also, uh, you know, every week I meet with the teacher, the presidents of the teacher unions, and I have to say, teachers care, teachers are wonderful, and they are going to do the job. And I do believe we've come far in 10 years, and I think we will overcome the challenge that we have right now. And we'll move on because, as Ed said, this is not a job. It's a calling. It's a mission. And people who are in this believe it's a mission. 
Fran Rabinowitz is Executive Director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Edward Singleton is Interim Principal of the Roten Middle School in Norwalk, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. When we return, political scientist Jennifer Deneen. She talks about new research at UConn on preventing gun violence. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Just days after massive rallies across the U.S. calling for change, a bipartisan group of U.S. senators have now reached an agreement. That agreement could be the most significant federal legislation on gun access in nearly 30 years. The proposed bill would incentivize states who prevent those convicted of domestic violence from purchasing firearms. It would deepen background checks for young people and expand funding for mental health services. Firearms are now the number one cause of death for both children and teens in the U.S. And because of a previous prohibition on federally funded research about gun violence prevention, there's still a lot to learn. Our next guest is trying to change that. Jennifer Deneen is Assistant Professor in Residence of Public Policy at the University of Connecticut. She's also Associate Director of the Yukon Arms Center. That's Advancing Research, Methods, and Scholarship for Gun Injury Prevention. The center was established in 2021. Jennifer, welcome to Disrupted. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, as I think about what's happening across the United States, thinking about what we're hearing in the news in a number of ways, there was a statistic that really stood out to me and troubled me. And that is this headline that firearms are officially the number one cause of death for both children and teens in the U.S. And thinking about the research that you're doing, the collaborations that you are fostering at UConn, I want to just begin with this very basic question. And that is, why do we see this epidemic of gun violence that seems to be uniquely an American phenomenon. Yeah, that's, you know, if we could crack that nut super easily, we could make a lot of progress. I mean, we have a few things happening. I guess the part of this that is uniquely American is the number of guns, specifically the number of guns in proportion to the number of people. So we probably, many people have heard the statistics that there are more guns than there are people in the United States, and that's true. Um, And so guns are pretty pervasive here um, culturally and just in number. And then the United States also doesn't do a good good enough job regulating who can have guns or protecting, keeping guns out of the hands of people who we've already determined shouldn't have guns, those with previous felonies, for example. And so we need to do a little bit or a much better job doing that. So before we talk about how we do a better job of doing that, I want to take a step back because you are a researcher and you're engaging in this research that really looks at the correlations, the causes and solutions 
for gun violence in America. And having that holistic picture of where are we? What do we do? What's working well? What do we need to lean into is important. But I'm also thinking about the fact that the federal government prohibited the use of using federal funds to go toward research and gun violence prevention for more than 20 years. So that prohibition just ended back in 2019. Why is this area of research so critical, not just for you and your team, but really for this area and the country overall? Well, the area of research is critical because gun violence has become a public health crisis in the United States, right? We know it's the number one cause of um, children and adolescents that used to be traffic. It used to be car crashes. And we've done a lot in the United States to make cars safer and protect drivers, right? Speed limits and different types of safety devices. One of the things about gun violence is it has many forms and many causes. And so not being able to research those different forms and different causes has not has left us with a, a lack of evidence into how we effectively reduce gun injury and gun death. So that's that's part of it. I mean, our colleagues in medicine and public health have been able to do some work in this area through other broader injury prevention mechanisms, but their work really due to the type of funding available, has focused a lot on the hospitals and among communities where gun violence is already an issue. And so we haven't been able to put enough effort in developing research that looks at upstream solutions. So solutions before gun violence is pervasive and a problem. You mentioned gun violence being a public health crisis in the United States. And when we think about public health, we think about not just the social determinants of health outcomes, but also the preventative measures that we can take, the the sense of agency that we can take in order to reverse some of these trends. And one of those areas in the connection to prevention is about safe gun storage and how that can then become a barrier to the negative outcomes that you've mentioned. What are you finding in your research about how the public thinks about gun safety and gun storage. Yes, our work, but also the work of others, shows that most Americans, including those who own and use guns, believe in secure and responsible storage, right? So we can have conversations about what's safe, but most gun owners will tell you that they believe it's important for them to store their weapons securely. And we know that secure storage can have a meaningful impact, right? Research shows that what we call child access prevention laws or those laws that require adults who own guns to prevent children from having access to guns can reduce gun homicides by like 17% if we're looking specifically at homicides committed by juveniles, right? Those secure storage mechanisms can also prevent guns from being stolen. And we know that thousands and thousands of guns are stolen each year, and those guns are often used in crimes, including homicides. So safe, or what we like to call secure gun storage, is really critical to keeping guns in the hands of responsible owners and out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. The other piece of it that I think when we talk about 
gun violence in the U.S., talking about strategies and solutions, it becomes very either or, right? Very polarizing. And it doesn't speak to the kinds of nuances in how people think about the issue, but also how people think about the solutions. And I know that you and your team have been conducting these surveys about how Americans, how people think about these particular policies. What are you finding in that space? Yeah, we're still very, these surveys are are very new. And so we are still digging into the data. But what we're finding is that there's more overlap among people in terms of when we look at Americans who use guns and Americans who don't use guns, they are closer on policy issues, especially issues around child access protection, secure storage, and keeping firearms from people who federal law already disallows them to possess. So people with felonies, for example. The data shows that the what we would consider the two polar sides are, are less polarized on those gun policy areas than we would have thought. You know, what I find so frustrating here is, as you said, there's more nuance there. There's more overlap. There's more consensus on some of these big questions than I think we would assume, given what we see, not just in media, but particularly in the legislative and political sphere. Why do you think it's been so hard to move the needle on preventing gun violence if there is, in fact, this overlap in public support? You know, some of it is that there is a lack of evidence, right? So we talked about that. And so it's it's very much, we have this horrible dialogue, um, what I call a horrible dialogue in gun violence prevention or gun rights security, which talks about common sense, right? We want common sense gun laws. And the the frustration I have with that, so a lot of it is around the language that we choose to use. What is common sense to me may not be common sense to you. But common sense policy is not evidence-based and it's very debatable. Um, And as I say, it's very perspective. What might be common sense to someone who thinks of their gun as a means of personal protection may not be common sense to someone who is concerned about that gun um, as a potential threat, right? So some of the work that we're doing here at UConn and that we're doing in collaboration with some colleagues at Johns Hopkins is doing this. It is talking to and getting information from citizen stakeholders on both sides of these debates, um, as well as people we would consider trusted messengers like physicians, to ask them what it is, how they are perceiving these policies, or what they find particularly harmful about them or particularly beneficial. When it comes to something like secure storage, we depend on what I'll call the stakeholder, the gun owner, to secure their weapons. And um, we often don't know with child access prevention laws that they've been violated until there's a terrible accident. We're never gonna get people to comply with policy that they find harmful. And so we just need to have a conversation that respects that there are two sides or two perspectives here. I wanna move us to talking about solutions because it's one of the things that is so appealing that about the work that you're doing and that your team is doing to be able to identify the problems, the challenges, but also moving us toward opportunity and solution. What are you finding in your research when it comes to those solution-based approaches to preventing gun deaths across the range of ways that those gun deaths are happening? I guess there's a couple of different ways we can think about solutions. And some of this would be work that we're doing here at UConn. And some of this may be work that others have done. You know, I've 
Some of it is about strengthening existing policies and tools that we have already, like background checks, for example, and closing some of those loopholes that would require background checks to be done on more gun sales. And we have some good evidence that the assault rifle ban which prevented people under eight, under 21, excuse me, from purchasing an assault rifle had an impact on injury and death. And so, you know, you have to be 21 to buy a handgun in the country, but you only have to be 18 to buy an assault rifle. And so we have some regulations that if strengthened, I think could improve our ability to prevent people who shouldn't have firearms from having them. And then the other thing that we're finding and thinking about is that it doesn't always have to be necessarily policy, but that there's practice. So we we, we count on trusted messengers like physicians or religious leaders to talk to people about all sorts of things and difficult things, right? But we know from research that physicians do not proactively or very few physicians proactively have conversations about firearm secure storage, right? And we try to use the term secure, not safe, because safe can be debatable, but a secured weapon is is less open to interpretation. And so we're doing work there to understand why physicians aren't having these conversations and what we might be able to do to make it more possible or facilitate proactive safety conversations. Most people may not think of a religious leader or even a physician as a trusted partner in having those conversations. But I think of, for example, pediatricians who ask families about the conditions in the home so that they have a sense of what the safety challenges are, not just for the child, but for the entire family and how we build that model out as we continue. There will be people listening to this conversation who say, this is just unacceptable that in this country, in this advanced democracy that we have, that we continue to have these debates about what we should do and about who's involved in the conversation. What do you say to listeners who express that frustration, whether it's because they say the Second Amendment is sacred and I don't want any infringement on that right, or people who say, I respect my rights, but the ability for people to live free of fear is also important. What do you say to people who are stuck in this space? We talk a lot about rights in this in this country and protecting them. Sometimes we don't talk enough about what I would call the converse of that right. So the responsibility. We have a right as citizens to certain freedoms, including the Second Amendment freedom. I would say we also have a responsibility to contribute to maintaining a safe democracy and a safe society for all of the people, right? As you talked about expanding this conversation, I think that's just one of the myths or misconceptions from so many is the scope of gun violence and where it is. And we tend to focus on these very large, traumatic and truly devastating, what I would call significant events, mass shootings in places. And those are horrific. And, you know, we need to think about how we reduce those. Um, They're scary for all citizens. But the fact is that we also know that gun violence is very related to domestic or family violence, for example, and that gun violence disproportionately impacts communities. There are children and adults who live with it every day. And it also um, disproportionately impacts 
white men because they tend to be the group who is most likely to use a gun in a suicide. And so the fact is, you know, your point about expanding who we consider to be a stakeholder here and who we want to incorporate in the conversation, I think is so important and part of how we navigate that tension, right? We all have these rights, but we also, I think, would say we have an obligation to protect each other. And where do we find the tipping point or the right space where we can do both of those things? What I hear in what you're saying is addressing gun violence in a comprehensive way is really a grand challenge for our time. And so as we conclude our time together, that's my question to you, Jennifer. What is the piece of it that for the next stages of your research or where you're going with this, that you say, this is where I'm going to focus on? You know, I've talked about people at UConn and the research teams that I'm part of. I'm part of research teams that include trauma psychiatrists and public policy scholars and public health scholars. I'm a political scientist. And so it really is a multi multi-stream problem that needs a multidisciplinary approach. And we're particularly interested, some of the groups I'm in, in continuing these safe storage conversations, both better understanding what tools or mechanisms work for gun users and who those gun users would look to as a trusted messenger for secure storage, but also expanding our conversations with physicians. Right now, we've only spoken with general practice physicians, but as you indicated, pediatricians are important partners. We also think OBGYNs are important partners. And so they treat women at all stages of their life, including when they have young children. But also maybe gun clubs become trusted partners here or gun sellers become trusted partners. There's been research that shows that gun sellers are very effective and helping educate gun owners on suicide risks and how they can help spot suicide intention or concerns among their their friends and peers. And so I think that we, that's really, I think, not necessarily for UConn overall, but some of the work we're doing now. And then from the Arm Center perspective, we're really interested in taking the good research that's being done, not just by the people in my group, but by people at UConn and otherwise, and translating it into non-academic, you know, policy briefs to make that good research useful and usable to the people who are on the ground trying to mitigate um, and reduce gun violence. I think that's a really important goal. It's something that UConn is investing in, trying to get academic research into the hands and minds of people who are working on this issue every day. Jennifer Deneen is Assistant Professor in Residence of Public Policy and Associate Director of the Yukon Arms Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. You can listen when it works for you. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening.